I suspect that the intent behind the, the title is uh, on feeling righteous indignation rather than on feeling righteousness instead of meaning uh, righteousness in terms of feeling noble, honorable, <laughs> pure-hearted and, uh, and such like. So I thought I would uh, offer some reflections on righteous indignation and uh, have that as a, a, a something of a follow-up to last week's uh, talk uh, about uh, loving kindness and uh, how that benefits the world. So those of you who were here last week uh, might recollect I was talking about the, the Buddha's famous simile of the saw, of the saw where he uh, <coughs> set the standard for loving kindness by saying um, that uh, even if you were uh, kidnapped by um, uh, a group of bandits and they were sawing your arms and legs off with a two-handled saw, uh, anyone who gave uh, gave rise and uh, say nurtured a uh, feeling of uh, of negativity, of hatred towards those people on account of that, they would not be carrying out his teaching. So this sets the bar rather high. <laughs> we fully acknowledge, but the Buddha was it was a genius at creating graphic images that stick in the mind, and uh, so that uh, <clears throat> even in a situation like that, where it might you might feel that um, hatred is a little is is justified, was reasonable to uh, uh, to have towards those who are treating you so uh, so badly. That uh, he said, that, you know, any kind of uh, of say nurturing or abiding in in aversion, in negativity, it, it necessarily is uh, counter to to dhamma. It's a counter to the uh, you know, the fundamental nature of things. To um, uh, to frame it in that way then really sticks in our mind because there can be a lot of things that we feel, well, it's reasonable to hate. You know, that, that, that person's evil, that's really bad, that should be destroyed, that should be wiped out. That's, that's, it's bad and it's wrong and it shouldn't be that way, therefore wipe it out. And uh, so that uh, that quality of a, a, a reasonable hatred culturally and in, in our own um, conditioning is, is quite a strong presence, I would, I would tend to say. <laughs> The uh, so uh, to me this this theme of righteous indignation uh, addresses that kind of uh, cultural um, conditioning that kind of viewpoint that it, it's reasonable it's good to make this into the enemy and to to hate uh, and to um, uh, to wish to to wipe that out that your your aversion is completely justified now as we were addressing last week. So that, um, as I was saying last week, it's uh, you know, when you're in a situation like that, you're not saying that you wouldn't feel pain having your arms and legs uh, uh, sawn off. But um, what the Buddha is pointing to is that um, dwelling in aversion, that quality of, uh, say, believing in your in your uh, attitude of um, of hatred, uh, negativity, uh, of anger. So it's not just say a uh, a, a, a painful feeling or a painful mood arising and passing away, but the mind taking hold of that and saying, "Yes, I'm justified in in feeling this, and yes, this is a good thing, and and this uh, this anger, this aversion is fully justified, and it's and it's good and it's right." So that's what I'd like to uh, address um, with the, this talk today. Well, the, um, as we know, this is, uh, those of us who live in the West and, and are, um, <coughs> say, familiar with the, um, the sort of Old Testament um, uh, philosophy, that uh, you, uh, certainly those of us who grew up in the Church of England, you get a certain amount of, of um, Bible readings from the Old Testament, and it's a very much a cultural reference point. Uh, the uh, eye for an, uh, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth, uh, that uh, if, if someone... Uh, is responsible for, for knocking, yeah, taking your eye out, then their eye should be taken out. If they knock out a tooth, then they should lose a tooth. And um, similarly, the uh, the often quoted passage, uh, I looked it up, uh, so it originally comes from Deuteronomy and is repeated, somewhat slightly changed in, in the letter to the Romans in the New Testament, which is, uh, vengeance is mine, saith the Lord. I shall, no, vengeance is mine, I shall repay saith the Lord. That's the quote from the letter to the Romans. Vengeance is mine. 
So they're, they're, I think there are even rock bands that call themselves, you know, Vengeance is Mine or kind of <coughs> Hollywood movies and so on. It's a, a very well-quoted well line. That Vengeance is Mine, saith the Lord. So that um, uh, that is a strong cultural reflex that, that to, uh, to say, wreak revenge, take out, if someone's hurt you, someone's done you wrong, someone's harmed you, then you, you, uh, you revenge yourself and you, uh, you seek ways to, uh, to bring harm uh, and um, to punish the other. And, but also, not to, to um, point the finger at, at the Bible, <laughs> we find that this is not confined to, to uh, Europe or the Middle East, but also um, many Asian uh, cultures and around the world. The, the culture of, of punishment and revenge is something that's very much a part of the, the human psyche, that uh, you are, say, prompted or, or encouraged, um, in, in a sense, to do the right thing. You know, you have to take revenge to protect the family honor you know you've your group's been insulted you know you've had your your um uh your say your uh, your tribe or your village or your group has been uh, attacked or, or hurt damaged insulted in some way and so then it becomes uh, up to you to set things straight So this is a, a very uh, uh, sort of familiar uh, pattern, and uh, and and yet um, you know the Buddha pointed to a, a very different attitude, to something that's much more skillful. So just because something is natural or it's familiar doesn't mean to say that it's good <laughs> or useful, or that we can't uh, we can't do better. We can't say steer our lives and our attitudes in a more skillful way. Uh, one of the the um, the issues uh, or the problems with with, uh, with this is that when we are when the mind dwells in aversion or we we believe in these sort of uh, punitive ven uh, vengeful attitudes, we also don't realize how much we're harming ourselves. That when when your mind is say, abiding in that you know he's done me wrong, I'm going to get him back. I'm going to I'm going to set this straight. Um, you know, you're, you're going to be punished. <laughs> just you wait, Henry Higgins. Just you wait. You know, I'll be, you'll be sorry, but your tears will be too late. <laughs> that there's that. It's uh, <clears throat> when when we abide in that kind of vengeful, negative attitude, uh, because it can be kind of um, invigorating <laughs> and um, give us a sense of purpose. Uh, we can miss the fact that it's also damaging to us and, and, and harmful and obstructive. Oh, when I, I was um, reflecting on this theme, I, I was um, uh, recollecting the um, uh, the subject or the the story of, uh, of the Buddha's relationship with his his own family, his father in particular. And uh, this might sound a bit heretical, but uh, <clears throat> it's, it's a very interesting. Um, fact it was pointed out to me a, a number of years ago by Ajahn Pasno, who's the the co-abbot uh, with me of uh, Abhayagiri Monastery in California. Uh, he one day when we were um, referencing something from the suttas, or people were talking about, uh, you know, can lay people ever be enlightened? And, and um, uh, I think I made the comment, well, you know, King Sadodana became an arahant before he died, and and, the, and Ajahn Pasno turned to me and said, not if you read the suttas. <laughs> oh, really? He said, so if you actually read the suttas, or, or you read the Vinaya texts, um, there's no reference to King Sudodhana ever expressing faith in his son's teaching. He never takes refuge in the Triple Gem. He doesn't become a stream enterer, let alone an arahant. Pause to let that sink in. <laughs> the commentaries, the later stories, they kind of dress it up, and, and of course then the, the Buddha's father becomes a faithful disciple and says, oh, wonderful Lord, how marvelous, you know. And... Uh, and yet, in the original texts, uh, there is none of that. Uh, in the commentaries and later stories, it has uh, King Suddhodana becoming an arahant and then passing away. But uh, if you read the original suttas and you look at the uh, the Vinaya texts where the stories of the, the Buddha coming back to Kapilavatu and then uh, revisiting with his family, his father criticizes him for going on arms round through the streets of Kapilavatu, disgracing the family. and Disgracing. <laughs> The family saying, you know, you're, you're going against the family traditions. He was a kshatriya, a warrior noble. He was a, 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 a military leader and a, and a prince. 
And so to, to, to King Suddhodana's point of view, uh, the Buddha was disgracing the family traditions by walking on arms around barefoot through the, the streets of Kapilavatu. And the Buddha countered and saying, uh, <clears throat> no great king, I'm not disgracing the family tradition because you know, in the family of the Buddhas, this is how Buddhas always uh, uh, live and how they, um, how they relate to the world. They, they, are, they are monks, they live on arms, they go through the streets and live on the offerings of, of whoever wishes to, <clears throat> to support them. And so he, his vision of family was different from King Suddhodana. King Suddhodana also criticizes him for giving Rahula, the Buddha's son, the, uh, the ten precepts of a novice. And uh, <coughs> you, you don't get a lot else. <laughs> so, I, I, you know, I, again, the, I, I don't wish to, to bring this up to be offensive or to upset people's perceptions. But uh, if you look at what you have in the suttas, you, you look at what you have in the, in the Vinaya teachings and the actual Pali canon, uh, it, it appears very much as though King Suddhodana deeply resented what his son was doing. He didn't recognize his son was a great spiritual leader. He was upset that he had um, caused such a, a um, <coughs> disturbance in the family. Because not only had King Suddhodana lost uh, his first wife, his uh, 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 Queen Mahamaya had died giving birth to the Buddha, but also then his uh, his second wife. Uh, uh, Mahapajapati Gautami became the first nun <laughs> and then he lost his grandson, beloved grandson Rahula became a novice a whole slew of Sakyan princes along with the Buddha, they had Nanda and Devadatta and, and uh, Ananda um, uh, Anuruddha and so forth, a whole slew of Sakyan princes had left the palace and become monks as well and then uh, Princess Yashodra, the Buddha's former wife, she became a nun as well So. <laughs> If you repaint the picture, rearrange the little pic the picture a little bit, you can see the this uh, heartbroken king. <laughs> He's ruined my family. And uh, again, I uh, uh, second guessing exactly what was going on in the mind of King Suddhodana. Yeah, it's uh, probably risky business. But uh, in reflecting on this, you can easily see how that feeling of uh, of resentment of um, this, uh, you know, the family is ruined, what's going to happen to the kingdom, you know, I don't like this, I don't want it, it shouldn't be this way. And that resentful feeling then uh, obstructing him, you know, when your, your son is a fully enlightened, self-awakened Buddha, and yet you can't see it, you can't, uh, uh, you can't, uh, say, receive or, or make, uh, <coughs> take advantage of the incredible spiritual benefits. You've got a Buddha in your family, your child is the Buddha. <laughs> but yet, it's like, well, I don't like it. He shouldn't be. He shouldn't be walking around barefoot. You know, he's disgracing the family. He's supposed to be a warrior. You know, he's he's ruining the the the, the family. And uh, again, I might be completely wrong. I fully confess that. But just <laughs> imagining for the moment that uh, that I'm right, <laughs> or just to entertain this picture for a little bit. What it says to me is that the uh, uh, the the father was was upset about what the son had chosen to do, how he chosen to live and was completely blind to the um, great spiritual accomplishments and the blessings that he could get from, from uh, having the Buddha as his own son. So that, um, that is, is a kind of tragedy uh, to me that is unacknowledged in the Buddhist tradition, or it's not really spoken about very much, but we're reflecting on, on this theme, uh, it's seen, you know, what, is, what a sad thing that uh, king, the, the, this great king had an enormous paramita, enormous spiritual virtues to be uh, so close to, to the Buddha, uh, so um, immediately connected to him. But yet, because of that, the feelings of indignation and family pride and attachment to his own view and his own rightness, like he shouldn't, well, I don't like it. You know, maybe people bow to him and praise him and he's famous, but well, I don't like it. <laughs> and that, that attachment to that righteousness, that righteous indignation, and created a, a closed door whereby the king couldn't recognize the worth of, of his own son's teachings. So he never took refuge, he never uh, became a stream enterer, and uh, maybe in a subsequent birth <laughs> he was able to reflect more deeply uh, and uh, to say, <clears throat> and uh, maybe he's even here in this room, <laughs> in a later birth having sort of swung around and come back in contact with the teachings again. but. Uh, I feel this is a, a very a poignant and uh, touching uh, story and important to reflect on that 
How sad, you know, you're so close to this incredible spiritual treasure, but because of your rightness, <laughs> your, your attachment to your own views, it's not, uh, it's not accessible to you. Uh, and it's not just uh, in ancient history that this scenario plays out. Uh, it's not uncommon for, for, for me to be uh, here receiving visitors and uh, either from a, a, fam a Western family, but also from Asian families as well, saying that this, uh, say, well, it's, uh, we're very upset because my son wants to be a monk. You say, well, <laughs> well, I think you're coming to the wrong place to get sympathy for that. You know. <laughs> I said, well, no, no, I mean, but he's just finished this master's degree in engineering and, you know, he's got so much potential and he's such a good son, you know, but all he wants to do is go off to the forest and be a monk. So I said, well, can you really expect me to say anything other than sadhu, you know? <laughs> but uh, I said, well, so uh, do, you, do you think it's a good idea for the, for the sasana, for the religion to flourish? And said, yeah, we really want Buddhism to flourish. That's why we come here and offer dana and we, we listen to the teachings. Well, if you really want the sasana to flourish, wouldn't it be, wouldn't it be worthy of uh, rejoicing that some intelligent young people who are very self-motivated want to join the sangha? Say, yeah, well, that's a good thing. Well, <laughs> you know, but, well, uh, but your son is an intelligent, self-motivated young person and he wants to join the sangha, so why are you upset? You know, that, uh, <clears throat> well, it's just, it's a waste for him. He says, well, where do you think all these uh, wise, self-motivated, bright young people are going to come from? If they don't come from somebody's family. <laughs> yeah, are they all going to be orphans? Yeah, they've grown up in the monastery because their parents died when they were little? Maybe. <laughs> but uh, right, you know, right, right here uh, in this current age, it's, it's exactly that. The people, they, the, the uh, attachment to our own preferences, our own uh, position, can create great difficulty and stress and, and say, <clears throat> close the doors to great, uh, great benefit. And so, uh, again, I, I, I am probably completely biased in this, <laughs> but sometimes the parents will say, well, it wasn't what we were expecting for our son or for our daughter, but now we've got used to the idea, actually, uh, we're very happy, we're very supportive of them. It's uh, not what we had planned. We was, we've been imagining grandchildren, <laughs> but uh, uh, we, we can now understand. Also, my own family, you know, that I, uh, I've been a, uh, <coughs> a, um, a monk for probably about 25 years <laughs> before uh, I got even a few um, begrudging <laughs> acknowledgements that, yeah, you know, that uh, they were okay with me being a monk. And that, uh, <clears throat> but still, you know, even after my mother's death, she would say, I, you know, I blame myself. You know, she was the one who helped me arrange my travel to the Far East after I left university. So I said, excuse me, blame? And I said, do you mind? This is my chosen way of life. Oh, sorry, 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 sorry. So that, uh, you know, I'm not, again, I'm not going to point the finger at my own family, but just saying this is a very common human condition and how when we attach to our own rightness or our own position, we can end up, um, say, making things more difficult for ourselves. We harm ourselves. Uh, another story uh, I thought I might share that, that came to mind when I was reflecting on this was a, a very uh, kind of interesting encounter. And it... Uh, Generally, I, uh, it's, uh, it's not something that I ever get involved in, but um, it's uh, giving advice to politicians and, and people involved in large-scale um, uh, political realm. But uh, <clears throat> once upon a time, about, let's see, it was about 1998 or 99, I was leading a day-long meditation in, uh, in the San Francisco Bay Area. And we were staying overnight with this uh, family, um, the, the woman of the family, her mother is a, a very long-term supporter of this monastery, and she's married to a uh, professor of, of political science at Stanford University, a man called Scott Sagan. And so uh, I was staying overnight at their place in, uh, uh, down in the Stanford University area. And over breakfast the next morning, uh, this, uh, um, this fellow Scott says, um, can I ask you a philosophical question? I said, yes, for sure. He said, do you think it's immoral to threaten Iraq with a nuclear attack? Do you think that's immoral? Uh, 
if they, you know, if, if they are found to have weapons of mass destruction and chemical, biochemical weapons. Do you think it's immoral? And my, my immediate response was, well, I don't think it's immoral, but I think it's very stupid. Anyway, this that's led to a very um, a fertile discussion. He actually agreed with me, <laughs> which is good. <coughs> and um, uh, we had a, a, a you know, long and a very interesting discussion about this. And then uh, I'm not saying that I uh, I was the only reason for this, but he he wrote uh, he wrote about this theme in a uh, a um, academic journal called the Journal of International Relations, and it's a it's a paper called the Commitment Trap. And uh, what he was saying was, was the theme of our discussion was that is and he said, well, why do you think it's stupid? And I said, well, if you make a threat out of your own, so you take a position and, you're, and then you very pridefully say, you know, if you do this, we're going we're gonna to blast you, we'll nuke you, then either you, um, you have to back down because you don't want to use nuclear weapons, or you carry it out, in which, in which case you cause immeasurable damage to a huge number of people, and, you know, which is a, an enormous human tragedy, and you've ruined your own reputation as well, so you lose on both counts. Therefore, is extremely stupid to make that kind of a threat, and he said, "Yeah, I agree completely." <laughs> and so that the the commitment trap was that once you've made that kind of a threat, you've you've grasped your position, you, and then you've you've uh, threatened others in that way out of a sense of pride and trying to be, um, say, uh, <laughs> macho, <laughs> to you know, use a Californian term. You're trying to be uh, tough and uh, aggressive and you know, show your teeth, then. Um, that uh, that very effort to uh, to say to seem tough and to threaten others it backfires and makes you seem uh, uh, you know foolish and and weak because you, you can't carry it through. So I was kind of amazed when I, when I in, uh, a few months later when he sent me a copy of this paper. I thought, oh, that was a that was a useful conversation, wasn't it? <laughs> but again, I don't I don't claim credit for the for the idea of it, but it was it was a very interesting discussion, and then. People say, you, know, you Buddhist monks, you just live off in this little kind of cloud cuckoo land. You're disconnected from the real world. And I say, well, you know, sometimes we actually get to contribute to <laughs> preventing nuclear war. Yeah, once in a once in a while, that uh, this this kind of thing can happen. That uh, even if my contribution was just a thousandth of one percent, still I, I feel you know, very very happy about that. But it, isn't it so easy, even on a, on a global level, where people make these kind of threats and, and or take a position uh, based on righteous indignation and like this is wrong, they shouldn't do that, this is evil. All right, right, like right now with the all the debates going on about uh, attacking Syria for their um, the, the chemical weapons that the, they seem to have. Um, that is exactly the same debate that people uh, get righteous and indignant and then. Uh, don't consider well. What's going to come from this? What 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 are the results of, of uh, say taking a, a position and then grasping it, and uh, you know, say forcing uh, a, a a conflict into being. Now, <clears throat> the last little story I thought I'd tell was uh, a, more of a <laughs> kind of a homely scale, less less to do with nuclear war, but. Uh, um, impactful in its own way. It's a story that uh, Lumpur Sumato has often told about when he was a young monk at uh, Wat Bapong, Ajahn Chah's monastery. And there was a particular monk there who uh, had really uh, bad, quote-unquote, speech patterns. So he was very loud, he talked a lot. <laughs> <laughs> present, present company accepted, of course. Yeah. Uh, he was very loud, uh, he talked a lot, and uh, he used very coarse speech and was always talking out of turn. And, um, and normally within monastic training, you're expected to be quite modest and restrained in your speech, to only sort of, uh, say things that are pertinent and to not be swearing at people or using foul language or, um, <clears throat> or you know, just uh, making random opinionating comments about this, that, and the other all the time. So anyway, the, uh, the young and righteously indignant uh, Ajahn Sumato got very upset with this monk's speech. And uh, as uh, last week I was talking about uh, how, how amazed I was that Ajahn Samadhi wouldn't, put, wouldn't set monk X straight in the early days at Chithurst. This was kind of <laughs> an earlier situation at Wat Bapong and, and the young Ajahn Samadhi was thinking, why doesn't Lumpur say something? 
yeah, this monk is totally out of order. Everyone knows it, everyone can see it, we're all aware of this. Why doesn't Lumpur do something? Why doesn't he set him straight? I mean, and he was amazed that Ajahn Chah wouldn't kind of blast this monk or, or um, scold him and, and uh, set him on the right track. So uh, <clears throat> then abiding in righteous indignation, <laughs> then the young Ajahn Sumato waited until Ajahn Chah was away and thought, well, if he's not going to say something, then I will. And also knowing that it, within Thai culture, confrontation is, is something that you generally avoid. You, you get your messages across often sort of through the side doors. Uh, or around the back. <laughs> um, but he decided to make an issue of it. So the next uh, fortnightly recitation of the monastic rule, often when the, the Pati Moka uh, recitation is finished, then the uh, senior monk would say, is the Sangha got any business to discuss? And so uh, Ajahn Chah was away, so I guess Ajahn Liam was probably the most senior monk. And so, so does, does the Sangha have any business to discuss? And, and then the, the young Tansumato sort of off at the, at the edge said, uh, excuse me, Tanajan, I've got something I'd like to bring up. And so then uh, he said, yeah, okay, so what, 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 <clears throat> what do you have to say? And so then he had his whole script prepared and launched into this diatribe against this, uh, this monk. I don't, I don't know what the monk's name was, but uh, anyway, he had a long list of all of the occasions that he'd spoken out of turn, the, thing, the, uh, the abusive and and uh, inappropriate things that he'd said, the times when he had uh, uh, sort of <coughs> upset people and um, said things that were really you know, out of place or insulting, or uh, you know, Ajahn, he knew Ajahn Chah was upset about, but you know, Lumpur hadn't spoken. So he had names, dates, places, everything was sort of <laughs> all aligned. He had lots of evidence. Uh, and so that uh, as he sort of let rip uh, in the midst of the Sangha, so all of the monks of the monastery were gathered there. And this monk was kind of looking you know, more and more uh, embarrassed and, and shame-faced and sort of staring at the, at the floor. And uh, when, when he got to the end of, of this diatribe, then um, everything went quiet. <laughs> and then uh, they didn't discuss it anymore. And uh, <clears throat> afterwards he was expecting people to sort of come up and you know, figuratively speak, speaking, slap him on the back and say, well done, Tansumedo, you know, you really let him have it. He's had that coming to him for a long time. And, but people didn't do that and sort of left him alone. And uh, next thing he knew, within a day or so, that this monk with the, uh, the unskillful speech patterns had, had, had disappeared, packed his bowl and robes and gone. So a few days later, Ajahn Chah got back from his travels, and as, uh, as happens with these things, he was uh, told about this story very quickly, and uh, <coughs> he um, uh, waited for a moment when uh, the, the young Ajahn Sumato was sort of nearby, and Ajahn Chah kind of beckoned him over and said, <coughs> and there were no other, other people around at that time, and he said, you know, Tan Sumato, what you said to that monk, uh, uh, you know, that was uh, really unskillful on your part. Said, uh, and the, the, the phrase he used, he said, uh, uh, I'm not sure of the Thai, it's probably something like, Tuk nai kwam ching, der pit nai pratham, which means you were right in fact, but wrong in Dhamma. So you had your facts correct, but you were completely out of, uh, of tune with things. And uh, so right in fact, but wrong in Dhamma. He said, you know, I was com uh, completely aware of that monk's... Uh, um, unskillful speech patterns. You know, so you'd have to be deaf and living on the far side of the moon to miss it. You know that he <laughs> obviously I knew, but he had upset people at every monastery he'd ever lived at. Yeah, he couldn't live anywhere, but he could live here because I chose to to accept him and to to tolerate his unskillful habits. So he he knew that he was accepted here. So. He, this was one place he could actually work on his own, uh, his own mind, his own nature. But now you've closed the door on him. He can't live here now because you, you shamed him in front of everyone. So you have to acknowledge that, uh, Samedo. And where he's gone, I don't know. Where, whether he'll be able to practice again, I don't know. Whether he'll leave the robes and just uh, get lost in the world, I, I don't know. But uh, you, you have to accept responsibility for that. So this is a story that Lumpur, many of you have probably heard him tell it before. So I'm not trying to <laughs> make him look bad. But Lumpur tells the story because it was, uh, it was such a, a shock to him because 
he was so right. Uh, he knew he was right, and uh, and he's uh, and he thought he was doing the right thing in letting this monk have his delivery. <laughs> but uh, this phrase of Ajahn Chah's, I, I feel, is extraordinarily helpful because uh, and he had a knack of of summarizing, you know, summing things up in a little nugget, <laughs> a short phrase. So that's one to really take away and keep. You know, right in fact, but wrong in dhamma, because that's what our culture uh, tends to um, support. You know this kind of uh, <coughs> taking on the the uh, the job. Well, if if Jehovah's not going to um, repay, you know, I'll I'll do it for him. <laughs> if uh, God the Father, whether it's whether it's Jehovah or Allah or Indra or Odin or Zeus, you know, that uh, the the kind of blasting thunderbolt wielding gods of our different mythologies, if if they're not going to do it, then I'll step in and I'll do the blasting for them. And uh, our culture supports that. You know that uh, that. Particularly, I, I was living in America for 15, 20 years, and it's an extremely prominent <laughs> feature of American society. There's a lot of Old Testament attitude there. You'd even see um, bumper stickers on uh, people's cars saying, if you're not angry, you're not paying attention. <laughs> so therefore, as soon as you see anything wrong, you should get angry. You're not being responsible. You're, you're letting the side down if you're not getting angry. So it's much more, it's very pleasant being back in England. <laughs> much milder here. But still, uh, these attitudes pertain, and we think we're doing the right thing. So I feel that that message of Lung Po Cha's to say, you know, you are right in fact, but wrong in Dhamma. Yes, you, know, you had your facts correct. And it's true, you know, he said, <clears throat> and the, again, the, t the phrase in Thai was bark, 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 which means his mouth was evil. There, Jai Di. But his heart was good. His mouth was evil, but his heart was good. And so um, that, uh, that was a very powerful teaching for, for Lumpur Sumato and something that really sank in. So that, and I guess it's why he gave the example of not blasting that monk at Chithurst in the early days when everyone was waiting for him to let him have it. <laughs> he, in the same way, you're saying, well, you know, this monk, he can't live, he's, he's annoying to everybody. <laughs> he drives everybody nuts. But I can find space for him. I can I can make more room and, and accommodate uh, this person in the full knowledge that they're upsetting to others, and let the others use that upset as uh, something to sharpen their wisdom, uh, their wisdom sword upon. So that uh, <clears throat> that sort of cultural conditioning that we have to that it's our duty to get angry or it's our duty to to straighten others out to be righteous indignant, righteously indignant. That, that's something I feel it's enormously helpful to look at. And so when we, we know we've got our facts that, you know, she did this and she did that, let me tell you about this. <laughs> I can't believe he did that again. And as we start to collect our list of all the wrongs that someone has done or some politician has done or some country has done, that we, we uh, look beyond the, the facts, the, the kind of data of it, and then say, well, uh, how can this best be communicated? Even if that's the case, what's the best way of helping this towards a resolution? Uh, is, is punishment and, or, or hatred, uh, negativity, going to be something that, that helps? Uh, what, what ways can we bring about the resolution for this, this relationship, this situation, this um, you know, family issue or political situation? You know, what, what way can we work with this? Uh, in, uh, in Buddhist tradition, uh, forgiveness is a very major feature. And this is something that, that we have as a, a very uh, central Buddhist custom, uh, say within the monastery and also within the Buddhist cultures, the, the ceremony and the practice of asking for forgiveness. So it's not just uh, forgiving others, but also, also recognizing that your own actions and speech can be harmful, can be, can be hurtful to others, and that we take the, the humble position of asking for others to forgive us too. So I feel this is, this is a really, um, uh, say, it's uh, not much talked about, but I feel it's one of the, the great cornerstones of Buddhist practice. And when we think about Buddhism, we often think about um, meditation, or we think about uh, keeping the precepts, or we think about uh, making offerings, dana, sila, bhavana. But forgiveness is a, is a, so has a quiet presence, but I feel it's a real cornerstone of Buddhist practice, because it, in a way it's... Uh, 
defining our relationship to other beings. So it's, it's in a way it's a partner to the, the realm of sila and conduct, noble conduct. But uh, it's that capacity of the heart to not bear a grudge. So in, in Pali the word patika means spite or a grudge. So if, you're, if your heart is abiding, if you've taken refuge in patika, that means that you've taken refuge in the grudge. Like, she's the one who's causing all the problems. It's her. If it wasn't, if it wasn't her, then everything would be fine. Like, I'm never going to forgive him. He's done me wrong. And yeah, he should never, ever be able to forget this, uh, the harm that he's done. That's patika. Um, and then viapada. Viapada is uh, ill will, which is a, a kind of partner to that. But that, that uh, in a way, this, this, this theme is addressing the, the bearing of grudges, the, the holding of that feeling of spite, uh, negative, kind of justified negativity towards another. And forgiveness is the counterpart to that, that recognition of, of so being ready to let go, to forgive, to, to give people the space to have made mistakes and to not be perfect. Now, uh, again, in our, culturally, forgiveness can seem to be weakness. That if someone's been forgiven, then they're let off the hook. They're not; be, they haven't been punished, and so that we can feel like, well, that's just being weak to forgive. You know, if you're, uh, if we really acted properly, then we would we would have vengeance. <laughs> we would punish. But uh, if we if we reflect on the Buddha's teachings and look at, at the, his words and and uh, study that, uh, <clears throat> the uh, the element of forgiveness is is very very central and not dwelling in aversion, the, the readiness to let go of, of grudges and spite. So uh, in, the, in the monastic tradition, uh, and this was a practice that Ajahn Chah uh, emphasized a lot as well, uh, any time that we spend a period to, uh, together, um, just to uh, say living together for three months of a rains retreat or winter retreat, um, at the end of a time when you've uh, been living together with other people, then you have a formal asking for forgiveness. So the word for forgiveness in Pali is, uh, to forgive is kamati, K-H-A-M-A-T-I, kamati. Funnily enough, the other day someone said to me, um, I heard there's no word for forgiveness in Buddhism. What? <laughs> so, I don't know where that came from. Maybe they read it on Wikipedia. But uh, the, <laughs> it was very bizarre. So, I heard there's no word for, to, for forgiveness in, in, uh, in Pali. I said, no. Kamati, if you're looking for it. And so that ceremony, you say, uh, uh, you ask for forgiveness of the, the junior person, addresses the senior person, first of all, saying, um, whatever uh, I have done through heedlessness, through pamada, through, uh, um, through body, speech, or mind, any of the three doors uh, that has been harmful or painful to you in any way, uh, I ask for your forgiveness for that. So even if you can't think of anything that you've said or done that might be upsetting or inappropriate, you make this blanket uh, re uh, acknowledgement that, yeah, I might have done or said something that was harmful. And particularly if you can remember things that you've done, <laughs> that you know were harmful, then it's even more important. But then, significantly, then the senior person, even if there's someone who's you know, the, the most sort of high exalted position or they're reckoned to be an arahant, they will still say, uh, I forgive you and please forgive me also. Ahankamami tumehi me kmitapanga. I, I forgive you and please forgive me also. So there's a recognition, even from the most sort of senior uh, and elevated, uh, spiritually mature person, that, and this happened also with, with the Buddha, that things that he said were hurtful. People got upset by things that he said or, or took things in, in a, a personal way and were upset, were, were wounded, were, were hurt by, by things that were said. So that um, uh, <clears throat> that, I feel, is a, a beautiful part of it. So that you are humbling yourself and recognizing that, yeah, we, we, uh, we hurt each other, we, we clash with each other, even when we have no intention or no cognizance of having done that. But this asking for forgiveness is a way of saying, uh, recognizing, yeah, we, we all make mistakes. We all, uh, living together as, a human, as human beings, this is a, a tough <laughs> undertaking. And we're bound to rub up against each other and clash and cause painful effects upon each other one way or another. But I choose to take the position of forgiving rather than vengeance. Like, how dare you? Don't you know who I am? <laughs> and when we, we look within our heart and say, well, what is the feeling of forgiveness? What's the aramana? What's the feeling 
uh, what's the tone of forgiveness in the heart when you say, that's all right, don't worry about it, uh, yeah, please let it go. How does that feel? Or when, uh, <coughs> or when we look at the heart and say, I'm never going to forgive you. Yeah. You're never going to be allowed to forget this. This will stay with you till your dying day and beyond. I swear. <laughs> what does that feel like? <laughs> so um, these, are, I feel, is a very uh, important uh, tradition to reflect upon. And I've done, done this many times, um, uh, particularly with uh, family events. Uh, uh, when I was both here at Amravati, also when I was, uh, say, running, helping to run the uh, family summer camp at Spirit Rock Center in California, then at the end of the family camp, we'd have a forgiveness ceremony between the children and the parents. Very interesting. So then the the child would would bow to the to the parents, the mother or father, both, and say. You know, whatever I've done by body, speech, or mind, you know, that's been hurtful, please forgive me. And then the parent does to the children. And it's very touching. <laughs> Seeing this a uh, little three-year-old. <laughs> and so dad bowing down to their three-year-old saying, whatever I've done that's been hurtful to you, please forgive me. And what's really interesting is that if you are bearing a grudge to the other, that even when you're carrying out, because it does happen in monasteries, you know, believe it or not, <laughs> that those within the, the monastery can uh, bear ill will towards each other sometimes, that when you're really carrying around that feeling of, he's an idiot, how could he do that? You know, what does he think he's doing? He's ruining the whole sangha. If you're carrying that around, when you say the words, by body, speech, or mind, whatever I've done, <laughs> that's hurtful to you, please forgive me, it really throws up into perspective that uh, spite that, that you're nursing, that you're cherishing. Because it's really hard to keep <laughs> to keep it alive when you're saying the words, "I forgive you," and you're inside you're like, oh, "But I don't really." <laughs> <laughs> it's uh, you're able at that moment to get a perspective on that that thing that doesn't want to forgive. And actually, I think the the last um, in the, looking at Lumpur Sumedho's uh, collected teachings, we're gathering together a whole five volume set of his collected teachings for his 80th birthday next year. Um, the last of the talk of his that was published in the Middle Way magazine was Patience, with the title of it was called Patience with the Inability to Forgive. So there's more reflections on the same theme there. So then uh, another aspect of this, along with this uh, asking for forgiveness, um, uh, is uh, so encapsulated in the, the chant that we do, the sharing of blessings. And uh, this is, uh, I, I found particularly striking, we had done, we'd done it in Pali for many years, and then um, we did an English translation, one of the sisters here um, did a very good English translation and put it into a melodic form. And uh, so when we started to recite it in English, it c came alive in a, in a whole different way, because there are certain lines in it, many of you are probably familiar, where you say, may all beings receive the blessings of my life, those who are friendly, indifferent or hostile. May all beings receive the blessings of my life. May they soon attain the threefold bliss and realize the deathless. Uh, the, the highest gods and evil forces, we share the blessings of our life with, with all beings. So that you are not saying, I share the blessings of my life with everybody except Margaret Thatcher and Joseph Stalin and Mao Zedong and, and Mr. Cameron or Mr. Assad. You know, I, I leave them out. But when you, particularly when you look at the lives of people like Stalin or Mao, who were personally responsible, or Adolf Hitler, personally responsible for the deaths of tens of millions of people, literally, that he said, "I don't want them to share. I don't want to share my merit with them. You know, all my good come. I've only got a certain amount to go around, <laughs> and they're much more worthy beings. And I don't want them to to be blessed. I don't want them to realize the threefold bliss. You know, physical bliss, mental bliss, and, and heavenly bliss, the bliss of nibbana." I want them to suffer. I want, you know, I want Mao to be punished. I want that. I I, uh, I don't agree with that. So that that uh, it, when I first started chanting it in English, it brought up uh, some interesting reflections. And but then very quickly you see, well, what it's pointing to is again this quality of forgiveness. That when you the, the mind that says no, I don't want to. I don't want you to be happy. I want you to be miserable. I want you to be punished. That's a, a narrow and and a violent, vindictive mindset. It's a narrow and and uh, adamic uh, mindset. 
And then to share the blessings of your life, to say, I, I, whatever state of being that Stalin might be in, or Mao Zedong, Adolf Hitler, yeah, that I'm not condoning their actions by, you know, for, for one nanosecond, but more hatred is only going to make things worse. More negativity put into the mix is only going to create more of the problem. And that's the insight that the Buddha's teachings carries across. You know, more hatred is only going to fan the flames. And how many times in human history, also in human mythology, how many novels and plays have been written about how in the process of trying to protect the thing that we love, we end up destroying it. Our very efforts to, to establish purity, <laughs> we end up creating corruption. How in our very efforts to, to destroy evil, we end up, uh, uh, say, empowering it and creating our own brand. I mean, I could do a whole list <laughs> I think we could all come up with our own uh, stories from human history and also from the the world of uh, of uh, plays and books and, and fairy tales that demonstrate exactly that. In our very efforts to try and destroy evil, we end up, um, uh, say, acting in, in, in harmful, destructive, evil ways. And there was a beautiful uh, reflect, uh, comment by Alexander Solzhenitsyn where he said, "It would be so evil. Sorry, it would be so easy if good and evil." were clearly, uh, uh, say, divided from each other. That good was over here and evil was over there. And, but then, and then we could just wipe out the evil and all that would be left uh, would be the good. He said, but it's not that way because uh, it's actually within the hearts of each of us. That, you know, the good and the evil live there together. You can't just put a line down between the two and just wipe the evil out. That's not the way that the world works. It's, uh, they're, they're both here together in our own jitta. You can't just isolate the one and and uh, and uh, say embody the other. It's not so simple. So this uh, this principle that's there in the sharing of blessings, I feel, is again extremely in, helpful to reflect upon. So it's a matter of finding a way that you do, you're not condoning or approving of unskillful action, like you know, uh, destroying the lives of others, uh, abusing and harming others. You're not condoning those actions. We are recognizing more hatred and um, violence towards the perpetrator, uh, the perpetrators of those actions, is only going to make the situation worse, is only going to compound the, the negativity in the mix. And so that, um, again, I'm sure this is going to be a, a, a lot of, sort of discussion and, and uh, different sorts of, of thoughts come up. I'm not uh, deliberately trying to be provocative. <laughs> But I feel these are very helpful themes, important themes to consider, because we uh, we so easily advert, we, we, we choose the, the the kind of easier option of say punishing the, the bad and, and thinking uh, in negative ways about that. But I feel one of the one of the, the aspects of the Buddha's brilliance and inc incredible wisdom as a spiritual teacher, he points to the fact that. <coughs> Just to to have loving kindness towards a being does not mean that you condone their actions. You can love someone completely and and, and utterly disagree with the, with what they're doing. <laughs> Where we tend to mush those together. It's like if someone says, um, "If you're obstructing me or you don't approve of what I do, then you hate me." No, I love you, but I just don't approve of what you're doing. <laughs> and that's hard for us to find. But when we find that. Uh, we, we find that spot, we realize that's, that's the middle way that the Buddha's teaching points us towards. That's a, a, the wonderful, beautiful middle way. Because within Buddhism there's, a, there's no concept of, a, of an absolute evil. Like Solzhenitsyn's uh, comment, you, know, you can't just take evil and wipe it out and all you're left with is good. The, the, you know, the Buddha points to the, the you know, Dhamma is the, is the reality, it's the, the truth of things. But you can't say that, that uh, unskillfulness or, or harm, uh, papaka, papa, evil, is like a sort of an equal counterpart. It's more like uh, the quality of papa or bap in, in Thai, or akusala, the unwholesome. It's more what arises when the mind is absorbed into its habits of greed, hatred, and delusion, and then goes counter to the reality of things. It goes counter to the dhamma. It obscures the dhamma. So that. Uh, Say within Western mythology or other mythologies, you have these beings that embody um, the, the, say, the, uh, 
the kind of uh, the epitome of evil, like like Satan, uh, the the uh, um, uh, the Lucifer figure of the Bible. Uh, and uh, in the Buddhist stories and Buddhist um, scriptures, you have Mara. Uh, but uh, whereas, say, in the to Judeo-Christian thinking that the uh, the Satan is put across as a sort of embodiment of, of all that's evil and, and bad and is sort of irredeemable, uh, Mara has a different role within uh, within the Buddhist text. And it's also very interesting that um, in Buddhist mythology. Uh, that that lack of an absolute evil is reflected right in the, in the stories. So there's a, a very interesting sutta, uh, sutta number 50 in the Majjhima Nikaya called the Rebuke to Mara, the Mara Tajanya Sutta. So in this particular sutta, it starts off with Mahamogalana, who was the Buddha's second disciple. So Sariputta was his chief disciple and Mahamogalana was the second, so senior disciple. He's so the Buddha's number, number two and number three. And um, Mara comes along and is trying to give uh, Moggallana a bad time. He's trying to, to upset him and disturb him. And then Moggallana says, I know you, Mara. I, I, know who, I know who you are. I know what you're doing. You can't pretend that it's not you. Yeah, I know uh, that you're trying to upset me and disturb me, but uh, you've, been, you've been spotted, Mara. So don't try and hide away and don't try and pretend it's not you. And <clears throat> so Mara thinks, well, he doesn't really see me. He can't. You know, he's, he's not sure. He says, Mara, I know it's you. Uh, I know you very well. In fact, um, in a previous life, I was a Mara, and my name was Dusi. I lived in the time of a, of a previous Buddha, and uh, in that lifetime, you know, I even attacked the, the Buddha's chief disciple and, and uh, entered the mind of a young, a young boy and caused him to throw a rock at the, the chief disciple's head and, and uh, caused him injury. And I was a, a Mara called Dusi in that, in that lifetime. And that Mara, uh, when I was the Mara Dusi, I had a sister called Kali. And Kali had a son. And that son, Namuchi, is you. <laughs> so I was your uncle. So I know you, Mara. <laughs> now, it's mythology. I'd say, and you might think, oh, this is more Buddhist fairy tales. <laughs> I came for some sort of reasonable, <laughs> rational psychology here. But uh, mythology has its own potency and its own power. Uh, and so right there in that story, here you have the Buddha's second disciple, like a, a totally enlightened being, and who's been, uh, uh, say, close to the Buddha and, is a, and has developed you know, enormous psychic powers, incredible, total purity of heart. So only a few lifetimes ago, he was the embodiment of evil in the universe. Right? So even if it's just mythology, that's an, a very, very important message. So that no, what it's saying is that no being is irredeemable. So it says, you can't make any mistake that is not fixable. Right? That's what it says to me. That, so there you are, you're living as Mara, your job is to be the, the, the force of delusion in the minds of as many beings as you can possibly affect. <laughs> That's your job as Mara. So there, Dusi Mara, or Dusina, uh, in that lifetime is causing incredible bad karma, deliberately, <laughs> all over the universe. And then a few lifetimes later, the, 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 the karmic wheels turn and uh, the, the wrongness of those, those actions have been seen and then things come together and then can, uh, that being can then work on their life and, and purify their own heart to the point that they're the Buddha's, one of the Buddha's chief disciples. Now even if you think that's just a fairy tale, that's a pretty significant fairy tale to me. That it's saying that nobody is un, unsavable. And so when, when we, we think of that, uh, even when we meet, you know, we might think Mara is a kind of remote uh, and, uh, say, fanciful figure, but if we just sort of go rewind a little bit in our own lives, just sort of look at your own story. <laughs> you know, who's the Mara in your plot? You know, that, that man, that woman who can't do any right, who's the source of all your troubles and who's uh, upset your world and is, uh, is totally you know, wrong and bad and should be punished. Yeah. Or probably some of us, most of us have got a few characters like that. So to be able to look past the behavior and recognize, you know, in a, in a, life, a few lifetimes, that could be a, a that, pers that person could be a totally enlightened being. It could be a chief disciple of a, of a future Buddha. Interesting exercise, huh? <laughs> and maybe the last thing to share with you uh, as uh, uh, food for reflection 
is um, about forgiveness again. And uh, uh, the, um, the way that the Buddha spoke about uh, the relationship between forgiveness and also about sila. Uh, I was living at a, a monastery in California called Abhayagiri Monastery. Uh, so when Thai people would come to visit or they'd see the name written, they would, they would uh, see the name, they'd say, oh, what Apaikiri? Or they'd, they'd uh, tell each other, oh, have you been to visit what Apaikiri uh, up in Mendocino County? And uh, so when uh, Thai people would come to visit, they would, sometimes they would say, well, why did, you, um, why did you call this monastery Forgiveness Mountain? So, well, it's actually, no, it's not Forgiveness Mountain, it's Fearless Mountain. Oh really? But uh, apai in in Thai language means to forgive, and uh, and so well the name of the, the monastery is Abhayagiri, which means and apaya means fearless. So apaya is fear, apaya fearless, fearless mountain, and it's named after an ancient monastery in Sri Lanka. That was a uh, a place that uh, welcomed both the Theravada, Mahayana, Vajrayana practitioners. So uh, <coughs> so. Uh, I hadn't really uh, uh, cognized that meaning or the difference in meaning in Thai. And again, with Ajahn Pasna, who's totally fluent in Thai <laughs> and also um, you know, knowledgeable about uh, you know, Pali as well, uh, he was explaining how, well, the, the word um, uh, apai in Thai is an exact transliteration of apaya in Pali. And I said, well, how do they get forgiveness from fearlessness? Uh, how, do, how do those two work together? He said, well, the reason why the word apaya in Thai language has come to mean forgiveness uh, and its relationship to, to uh, freedom from fear is if, if I forgive you for everything you might have done wrong, if I'm not holding any grudge towards you, anything you've said or done that has been hurtful to me, I'm not carrying it around. You don't have to be afraid of me. So that... Uh, one of the uh, said, uh, and you know that the the different kinds of dana or generosity that the Buddha spoke about said a material generosity, amisa dana, is the 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 most sort of simple and basic kind of generosity. The more refined, the next uh, kind of level of generosity is abhayadana, the giving of fearlessness. He said usually when you we you read explanations about abhayadana, it's uh, it's to do with um, keeping the precept. So if someone's taking the precept not to kill, you don't have to be afraid they're going to harm you or kill you. Uh, you take, they've taken the precept to not steal, that you don't have to protect your stuff because they're not going to steal it. So a payadana to offer fearlessness to another, freedom from fear. Uh, so by keeping the precepts, you are, you are practicing a payadana. You're offering uh, freedom from fear for others. So similarly, that, that's why um, the... Uh, the the aspect of forgiveness is part of it because if uh, if someone is um, not say carrying around any negative thoughts towards you that they're, they're they are forgiving they are generous open-hearted they are uh, they are thereby making it comfortable for you to be around them you don't have to worry about what you might have said in the past you don't have to be concerned about any kind of negative feelings because they've dropped it they've forgiven you so therefore. The, uh, what the, what it, the result is a, a freedom from fear, and that's how fearlessness and forgiveness uh, come together. So, if you wish to develop uh, this uh, this particular aspect of Buddhist practice and uh, developing the quality of, of forgiveness, then you'll be surprised at the good effect that has on people around you. <laughs> that people are. Uh, uh, are much happier when they when they when you meet together with with friends with family and in situations. If you're not carrying around any kind of negative projections, then you find how much more comfortable folks are to be around you. The people uh, are say are uh, not walking on eggs, as they say. They're not uh, worried about uh, what you might be, um, say the attitudes you might have towards them. So this is a way of making. A lot of uh, the forgiveness is uh, readiness to see that the world is imperfect, <laughs> like batteries in microphones. You know? <laughs> that uh, things run down, things wear out. We don't have to uh, <coughs> to um, to take it personally. And so, when we recognize that within ourselves, we're ready to forgive ourselves, our own shortcomings, and forgive those of others. We find life is a, a lot more uh, uh, con uh, filled with contentment 
and peacefulness. So at that point, I will offer these thoughts for reflection, and uh, we'll have a, a pause for some refreshment for about 20 minutes, and then gather back together for dialogue at about uh, 20 past 